afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Notre Dame Stadium. Zivikowski trying to get to the outside. He has blockers in front. Time for Zivikowski. Belong to beat. Shakes it off. To the five and touchdown. And now it is down. It is over. And the Irish have knocked off number one Clemson. Brady Quinn looking. Pump fakes. He rolls to the near side. Throws it. It's caught by Samaja. Inside the 20. Inside the 10. He's going in. Notre Dame has scored. Jones is the back. He's got it again. And Jones a letter room. Tony Jones makes a cut. Gets a block. And scores. Is that the play that will seal the playoff bid for Fighting Irish? Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunset Saturday Irish. I'm Charlie Rojack and alongside me is my co-host Luke Smith. And this episode is going to be a lot of fun, mainly because this past Saturday was really, really fun for almost every Notre Dame fan out there. Um, at first, I thought it'd be unanimous. I was going to say that every single fan who watched Notre Dame dominate Georgia Tech for 60 minutes on their way to a 55 to nothing shutout victory on Senior Day was thrilled with what they were watching from the Irish. But then I remembered the miserable people who post on the Rocks House and ND Nation <laughs> message boards still exist. So I'll just say almost everyone. Um, anyway, Saturday was awesome. Uh, since there's practically nothing to not like from that game, instead of doing our usual what we liked and what we didn't like breakdown from this one, we're going to discuss what we liked and what we loved because there's plenty to choose from. Um, then we're going to be joined by Tyler Plants for the second half of the show. Tyler was a former running back for the Irish from 2011 to 2014. Then he served in a bunch of different roles on the Notre Dame coaching staff from 2015 up until this season, most recently serving as the assistant director of football operations. We've had Tyler's younger brother, Logan, on the show before, and you probably won't find a better Notre Dame family than the Plants's, so it was great to have Tyler on. We covered a bunch of different topics from his time as a player, a coach, and a whole lot more, so I hope you guys enjoy that. But Luke, back to senior day. I honestly went into the weekend uh, expecting another pretty boring game, kind of like what we saw against Virginia the week before, where Notre Dame won easily, but nothing remarkable would happen. Uh, But that wasn't the case, because this game absolutely ruled. So to start off, I want to pose this question to you. Was that the best Notre Dame senior day ever? Yes, and I'll go as far as saying it might have been the most fun game ever, just senior day, any other day combined. Um, To be honest, you kind of raised a good point. I thought it was going to be boring as well. I didn't even really want to go this weekend, but I I did. Um, And it was just a whooping. And I I can't ever remember Notre Dame doing that in my lifetime, and it was literally from the opening kick with that 50-plus yard return from Tyree which, by the way, I don't think he's fully healthy because if he is, he houses that. I, I'm pretty sure. Agreed. But that's another discussion for another day. But the romp was just on right from then. Uh, beautiful day. From my seats, I had a great view of Touchdown Jesus and uh, in the dome. And it was really just an awesome day in South Bend. I mean, I really can't complain. Weren't a ton of my friends in town, but those that were, um, we had a blast. So, uh, yeah, n- nothing to complain about. Did you have more fun at that game or USC 2017? Oh, it's always going to be USC 2017. Yeah, that's what I figured. But for for what I expected going into this game and that I just didn't think we could glean a whole lot, it was a lot of fun. That's a good point. And the senior day element obviously helps out as mm-hmm. well. Um, I think it's definitely the best senior day of my lifetime. Yeah. Like you said, they dominated the entire way. And like Notre Dame's blown out inferior teams before, like New Mexico State. Bowling Green, Miami of Ohio. I'd even throw Navy in 2019 in there, but not a Power 5 team. And look, 
I get it. Like Georgia Tech is terrible, um, but they're at least competitive in every single game they play this year, except this one. Um, we should all be rooting for them to play amazing against Georgia next week. I doubt it, but it was a perfect game, perfect weather for senior day too. Um, it looked awesome on TV and everyone got in. It's a bunch of backups. The only person who didn't get in that I would have liked to see get some snaps is Drew Pine just because of everything he's had to deal with this year, but truly just awesome beginning to end. And I loved every second of it without question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, there's really, I, there's a lot of things I like to complain about and I can't find anything. So, um, yeah, it was pretty yeah. awesome. All right. So let's move into what we liked. What did you like the most? I'm going to start with Michael Mayer just being wide open for a touchdown, uh, for the game. He had three catches for 86 yards, but the wide open touchdown he had, there wasn't anybody within, I don't know, 25 <laughs> yards of him, 52 yards. You might have been closer to any defender from upstairs. Yeah, inexplicably, Georgia Tech put three guys on George Takis on that play, and so Mayer was just wide open, which never really a good strategy to not guard the best player on the field, but uh, they went for it, I guess. He now has five touchdown catches on the year, which I believe puts him one off from the record by any tight end in a season at Notre Dame. I'm pretty sure that record is six, so... Could could reach that. We'll see. Kind of kind of shocking that that figure is that low, but I'm pretty sure that that's the number. He's actually pretty close to surpassing the most receptions in a single season um, by any tight end. I think they showed it on the broadcast. Eifert holds the record. I want to say it's 63. The fact that this was such a blowout kind of hurts Mayer because he only had three catches. Right. He really wasn't out there that much. Someone mentioned that he like was throwing gloves and towels into the stands with like halfway to go in the third. But I mean, he obviously wasn't going to get back in there. But yeah, it actually statistically hurt him. But still, this is one of the best seasons of any tight end we've seen in Notre Dame history. And we've still got one more with him, which is insane. Yeah, it's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, Moving to the defensive side of the ball, Clarence Lewis really just ate up snaps, CPA. I thought he played his best game of the season. He had a rough patch earlier on uh, at one point in the season. But I think he's kind of really found himself the last few games. And on Saturday, he was second on the team in tackles, had a pass breakup, and just blew up a screen at one point, a blocker on a tackle for loss. So that was great to see. And he, and he also led the defense in snaps with 61 snaps. Really, nobody else was close. I think Bo Bauer was next closest with 40. So eight up snaps to the defense, and, and I thought he played really well. Yeah, I feel like for him, he hasn't had any huge plays. Um, other than the first pass breakup he had against Cincinnati, that was a really impressive play. He's kind of just been having a quiet season, but... Maybe that's good if you're a DB, you know, like if as long as you're not getting burnt and you're not like the topic of everyone just hating on you, a la Gary Gray back in <laughs> the uh, early days of the Brian Kelly era. If you just sort of like ride it out and just aren't getting beat that bad, that's that's fine. Yeah, just don't be as invisible as Houston Griffith, but, um, you know, that's OK. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, I'm actually I guess I, I guess I'm hitting on all three phases of the ball here, but uh, blocking that pathetic field goal attempt by Georgia Tech when they're down 45 to zero. When Jeff Collins trotted out his field goal unit down 45 points late in the first half, we were chanting Dino Babers from the Syracuse game three years ago when they ruined our shutout down like 38 nothing or whatever it was with like 30 seconds left. But thankfully this time around, MTA got his hand on it and preserved the shutout. Just absolute cowardice from Jeff Collins really all day. I was so confused. Like there were probably five or six different drives where they had the ball right around the 50 and just punted down like 40 points. It's like, what do you have to lose at this point? I guess really maybe he was just looking out for his quarterback who took a beating. But other than that, I just was like, what are they doing? I was just going to say, I think it became a safety hazard for them on offense, like trotting out Yates out there every time, just getting absolutely crushed. Um, They, they, he's like five ten, 
and he got sacked. I think it ended up being like seven times, but he was getting demolished even when he wasn't getting sacked. I feel like every time he did get a throw off, he was still getting hit. So I think that was the point. If they couldn't implement a running clock, like you might as well just punt it and try to get this game over with as soon as possible. Fair enough. And you're right. And with that performance, I think Notre Dame is what, like two sacks away now from matching the all time record in a season, which I think was 2003 or 2004 with the Justin Tuck team. So that's it's pretty darn good. Yeah, they're getting really close. Um, and I think that was the expectation coming into the season, just given how Marcus Freeman, how aggressive his defenses play. But still, the fact that they're doing this and they're, they're going to cruise by it is pretty incredible. Uh, for me, I'm going to go with uh, Jack Cohn's family in the crowd. First, let's give a shout out to Jack Cohn. He had a great game, finished 15 to 20, 285 yards, two TDs and no picks. Um, I think it was the best game he's played since the season opener against Florida State. But the real story here was his dad in the crowd. The broadcast crew was talking about how his dad and uncle, they grew up diehard Notre Dame fans. We've talked about this story before. And the camera sort of just kept going back to him on that last drive of the first half. Notre Dame was already up by like, it was like 38 to nothing at this point. And he's standing up, nervous, shaking, clapping, like the game was about to be determined on the next play. He was on pins and needles. And then Kyron Williams eventually scored on like a one-yard run and all was well. But it just made me think about everything that Cone and his family have had to go through this season. Um, it was a great moment when he committed to Notre Dame or I guess transferred to Notre Dame. And let's be honest, I'm sure this year didn't go how they had planned it. But his redemption tour after the Virginia Tech game has been awesome to watch. And it's been instrumental in getting Notre Dame to the point that they're at now. So it's cool to see him and his family get to share that moment to cap off his short time playing games at Notre Dame Stadium. They got to come on the field afterwards. So really cool. But it's just kind of funny to watch a family just sort of take that all in, even though the game was like well in hand. You played well. I, I agree. And this is actually kind of crazy to me, but... Um... By no means is PFF infallible, as we've said many times, but through 12 weeks, Jack Cohn at 83.8 is the highest-graded quarterback Notre Dame has had since 2014. That's uh, that's pretty insane to me, to be honest with you, but um, hey, good for Jack Cohn. I think what's even more insane was Everett Golson in 2014 <laughs> graded out that high because yeah. he was a turnover machine. Well, I guess my question is, when was PFF started? Oh, that's a good point. It might have been right around then. Because that, that doesn't make any sense, because Everett Golson was all over the place yeah. that year. I mean, didn't he got benched by the end of the year. So, yeah, we'll just assume that it was just the start of PFF. That makes sense. They should have clarified. Yeah. Regardless, pretty remarkable. He's outshone 2015 Kaiser and uh, a couple years of Ian Buck. Uh, really impressive. Yeah. Another thing, uh, staying on the offensive side of the ball, all season, we've said the defensive line is the best position group on the team. And, and don't get me wrong, I still think that's the case. They're the deepest. They've performed the best all season. But as the season has gone along, the play from the guys in the running back room makes you wonder if that's the most talented group on the team. Like, it's crazy to think about how far we've come since 2019. That was Lance Taylor's first year when he joins the staff as the running backs coach after leaving the Carolina Panthers. Against Georgia that year, we just didn't even try to run the ball because we didn't have the backs, and going up against their defense, they just completely punted on that entire part of the game. Now we have four guys who look like they could start on college teams across the country. We know about Kyron. He's a legend, the best running back of our lifetimes. Um, then you've got the five-star Chris Tyree backing him up, and I agree with you. He's not healthy, but he still had maybe 
the most impactful touchdown of the year, albeit on kickoff return, but still he's a running back Mm -hmm. and Taylor got him here. And then behind him, you have two true freshmen. Both of them now look poised to have great careers. Logan Diggs has really come on as of late. He has two touchdowns in this one. He looks like he's going to be a star. And then we finally got to see Audric Estime get some carries. And good luck tackling him, man. Um, he's an absolute beast. We saw the pics of him working out in camp, and he looked like a 35-year-old bodybuilder. There's no way in hell he's 18, but apparently he is. On Saturday, he got his first real game action of the season. Finishes with six carries for 61 yards. Plus, he hurdled a dude. Like Wait, two weeks in a row. Are you are you really calling that a hurdle? Are you calling that effort a hurdle? His legs. He got he, he got six them. inches off the ground. <laughs> I'm By not joking. The textbook but definition. It's it was it wasn't it wasn't a Logan Diggs hurdle. No, it wasn't I, a Logan Diggs saying. hurdle. But he did it. Okay, yeah. and he's a huge back. Like I did not expect no, I, that. I agree. Um, so yeah, man. Like just given where we're at, two straight weeks now, two freshman running backs showing out. It's really hard to believe, but it's pretty damn exciting. We have to do what we can, whatever we can, to keep Lance Taylor. I've seen his name come up in some potential head coaching job. Yeah, I think Troy. Bruce Feldman included him in Troy, right? I don't know what his interest is in that, going to a team like Troy. Being a head coach, obviously, is a huge upgrade, but maybe he's comfortable being the running backs coach. Maybe he wants to see what Diggs and Estimate can do because the future is really, really bright with those guys, and I think a big part of that is due to Lance Taylor. Without question. I mean, he's done a tremendous job. Uh, you're right. Estimate, for a guy that looks like he has heads on his shoulders, he was a lot quicker than I anticipated seeing him. Really, it carries the first time this season, so that was that was good to see. You know, it's funny. I think about this sometimes, and obviously a lot's been made about Kyron's transformative time off during COVID, basically, and how he got his body into shape. But I, I still wonder sometimes if Chip Long – pulled the plug a little too early there after one play in Louisville his freshman year because you, you can't tell me you're, – you're trying to tell me that guy couldn't have done anything in 2019 for the Irish. Tony Jones was good, but, it, I mean, he's not Kyron. I just struggle to believe that that guy couldn't have done something for us that year. Yeah, it's definitely hard to believe that he couldn't provide anything. But then again, when I see pictures of him from that Louisville game and really his freshman year – he looks like a different person and he shed a bunch of weight. So I don't know. I, but I'm with you. Like he's so talented. Could the jump been that huge between year one and year two? Maybe, but it's, if it is the case, that's the greatest off season anyone has ever had. Yeah. With, without a question. I mean, and it probably still is, even if he, you know, in my opinion, probably would have been able to provide us something in 2019, but such is the nature of, of Chip Long. <laughs> exactly. All right. One more thing on things I liked. Um, Jack Kaiser has as many touchdowns as Chris Tyree this season uh, and more than Kyle <laughs> Hamilton does in his career. I don't know if it's hmm. just him being in the right place at the right time or what, but the fact that he uh, got... Yeah. The, yeah, probably. But the, the one against Wisconsin was literally thrown right to him. Well, I think the one on Saturday was far worse. That was the worst pick six I've ever seen in my life. I know. The guy's going to the ground. He just throws the ball up. Jack Kaiser's like, oh, He's there. okay, I got this. Yeah. Hey, he doesn't have to apologize for it. That's the second touchdown of this season. Never would have guessed that. And he almost scored four plays earlier on that fumble um, that they eventually overturned. And like normally, you think about it in the terms of a, a you know backup linebacker. If that happens once in a game, or that's like a once in a season opportunity to become right. that close to scoring. And then he just turns around for a few plays later and scores again. So good for him. Never would have yeah. guessed it, but he's got two TDs. Jack Kaiser, ball hawk. The biggest news is that um, he did go down at one point, and I was like, are you kidding me? Another linebacker out. But 
Brian Kelly said today, it's not a high ankle sprain. He'll play this week. And I'm actually taking Brian Kelly at face value because I watched Jack Kaiser on the sideline in the second half, put his helmet back on and he was ready to go in. Obviously he didn't need to, but he actually looks like he will be ready to play this week. So that's good news. That's great news. I was really surprised by that too, because it looked bad on the replay and he could barely get off the field. Like, I'm not going to lie. My first instinct was that looked like it could be an Achilles. An Achilles. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. Um, Great that he's back, and I don't know if he'll play this week, but if it was an Achilles injury, we're talking about missing all of next season. So it's great that that was not the case. All right, let's move on to the things we loved. So I'm going to start with the play design on the touchdown screen pass Logan Diggs. I thought Tommy Reese called a hell of a game, and, and frankly, in my opinion, has had a tremendous season just adapting this offense through its different ups and downs. Um, the play call on that screen pass was incredible. He had misdirection on the snap with Tyree in motion. They had the defense looking to the field side. Cone fakes throw. The corner blitzing is out of the play, so then Mayer just takes out the play side linebacker. And then I actually thought this was interesting. Kelly revealed today in his presser it was supposed to be Kane Madden who was supposed to get to the second level and wipe out the safety, but he was a little too slow getting out there. So instead, Josh Lug got out there and absolutely hammered this safety. Uh, that was like right in front of me. And I was like, oh, my Lord, he just <laughs> knocked him out. But uh, worked out perfectly. Diggs ran behind him and Patterson into the end zone. Just a great play call and, and execution, even if some of it was a little bit on the fly. Yeah, definitely. And good for Lug. He made up for two bad misses on that opening drive. Both of them yeah. went to sacks, I think. But showed some athleticism out there in space. And yeah, he just... He just tossed that safety, dude. Like that, that looked like he gave no effort on that at all. Just like, get out of my way, dude. Yeah, it was it was insane. You know, I think my other two things I loved just because the game was so wow, like we just hammered them. They're, these are gonna be a little bit, bit more big picture or just a game experience type things. Uh, the reception when they showed John Bon Jovi on the uh, on the jumbotron. I think the place went ballistic, which is crazy because they don't normally go ballistic for anybody, but. Then we started getting into it and singing It's My Life, and the old people next to us loved it, so that was great. Um, at least they loved it considerably more than the We Want Georgia chant that we started at halftime, myself, Pat Falkenberg, and Chuck Connors <laughs> in the stands. So uh, that one, I got an old guy turn around and me say, no, we don't, but uh, I still want him. I love that. It's My Life. I'm surprised they didn't go with Living on a Prayer. I feel like that's their Oh, they, they went with that, too. They, they played like two or three Bon Jovi songs. So the third one I'm going to go with is uh, Saturday was Orange Van 3's last game. I've talked about the Orange Van, my tailgate spot on the podcast in the past, and uh, we're currently on the third iteration of the van. Each one has been blessed by a priest with holy water. Uh, Saturday was the last game for Orange Fan 3. This van is the one that made it to the national championship game in Miami in 2012. Somehow survived that trip and back. Uh, made it to Soldier Field in 2012. Unfortunately, it, it cannot make it another season after its catalytic converter and a handful of other parts were stolen off the van this offseason, but it did make it through this one. That means it's time for another van, so got to figure that out now. But it was a, it was a hell of a way to send this one off, winning fifty five to zero. And when you consider that this van's first season was in two thousand seven, which was probably the inverse of this season, this was a pretty good way to cap it off. So uh, shout out to Orange Van Three, and uh, looking forward to to meeting Orange Van Four this fall. Okay, I've got a couple Orange Van questions. Mm-hmm. First one: What's the process in finding the priest? To bless it. Is it the same priest every time, or is it a Notre Dame priest? Who is it? Yeah, so it was the first two vans. Actually, shoot, maybe three. Definitely two, maybe three. I'm trying to think of when this priest passed away, but um, I think it might be three. One of 
a priest who he was director of Grace Hall, and he was then friends with all my dad's friends who lived in Grace Hall. Uh, would come and bless the orange van, like for every iteration of it that they got. So that was Father Jerry. Uh, I forget what his last name was, but he he blessed all three vans. I'm pretty sure. I know the first two for sure. And I'm pretty sure he was still alive for the third one. So yeah, <laughs> that's pretty funny. I can't even imagine the first conversation. Like, hey, we need you to bless this van, but we need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it went over well. Okay, the second one was this catalytic converter stolen. Was the van located in South Bend at the time? Oh yeah. Yeah. I am so not surprised. Yeah, I mean it's it South Bend is a weird weird place. Yeah, a car in South Bend is not safe. Personally, I had a car broken into <laughs> my senior year. You were actually Just one? there with me. Just one? I had a car broken into once and that someone broke into the house earlier oh, that yeah. same semester. Um, and just stole my laptop out of the living room. One of us left the back door open, so I can't... I mean, it's a break-in. We were all out, but unfortunately, we were streaming. I think it was the Mayweather-McGregor fight on my laptop. Left yeah, it, in the living it was room, some boxing match. Yeah, that was during syllabus week, and then... So I had to get a new laptop, and then a couple months later, I go out to my car. It's a Friday morning, and you. I think you were with me because I it looked was. at the back window, and I was like... This is so weird. Why do they smash my window? And at that point, I didn't think they had taken anything because I never leave my backpack in my car. Look around it. I'm like, all right. Like, I don't know. I guess they just didn't really like my car. We go on, go about our mornings. I think we went to brunch, having a good time. And then like later on in the afternoon, I'm like, all right, I need to get on my laptop or something and realize I couldn't find it. And then it all sort of hit me. And I realized I left my backpack in my car second laptop in the span of like two months stolen. So shout out to South Bend. Uh, thanks for that. Didn't you have like a broken hand or something? Or was that a different point in time? I think that was, I don't know. It was <laughs> fall semester senior year was rough. Um, yeah. But that was after the USC game. Okay. I like couldn't okay. move my hand. Oh, anyway. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, all right. We'll get off that tangent now. Things I loved. First thing, every senior from Wapu Nation got in the game plus a few others. I was texting with friend of the program and former WAPU Nation president, Sam Bush, during the game. He's basically my like WAPU correspondent, giving me updates. And he said that every senior walk-on got in the game by the end of it. That's awesome. We've heard Sam. We've heard Logan Plants tell us about how incredible that moment is to get on the field for the first time. So knowing that a lot of guys in the locker room were on cloud nine after the game is just awesome. We love giving love to the walk-ons. Saturday, they got some recognition for everything they put into the program in the form of playing time on Saturdays. So just good for them. There's nothing better that could happen on a senior day, really. Now, without without question, I mean, I'm sure most of their families, if not all of their families, were there. So, uh, yeah, really cool moment. And another awesome moment, I'd argue, is the best moment of the season was uh, Myron Tagovailoa Moses' touchdown. He's been a great player for Notre Dame for years, first of all, and he seems universally loved by everyone in the program. He's a captain, and given everything he's had to go through this season, the fact that he got to cap off his senior day with a 70-yard fumble return for a touchdown was incredible. I did not think he was going to score. He got some big blocking from Isaiah Foskey on the way. Um, As most of you know, Myron's dad passed away during fall camp prior to the season. He found out he was a captain while he was actually with his family in Hawaii, I think he had to attend his his dad's funeral via Zoom after the Toledo game. But despite all of that, he's had another phenomenal season. His family was in the crowd for this one, uh, coming from Hawaii. So it was extra special. And honestly, the reaction from the sideline said it all. It was such a cool moment. What was it like in the stadium? 
it was awesome. Um, to be honest, initially, I wasn't sure that it was a fumble. And then once they showed the replay, I saw, oh, wow, he actually did get that ball out. So that was really cool. You know, as he was kind of stumbling down into the end zone, keeping his balance, uh, the place kind of was just in delirium. Like, wow, this is just a really fun afternoon here. Yeah. And it, at that point, it was kind of a dull moment in the game. Georgia Tech was moving the ball, and then that happens. And it was just like, oh, yeah, we're back to complete domination. But. The person who made that play possible was Isaiah Foskey. He's the third Mm -hmm. thing I love from this one. Just another incredible game. He was also responsible for Jack Kaiser's touchdown before. Um, We need to get him in the end zone now. I know he got in in the pick game last year on that blocked punt, but I think he's been responsible for like three or four touchdowns this year, getting in the backfield. seems like every sack he has is a strip sack. I really, really hope he comes back. I think Brian Kelly was a was asked about it today in his press conference um, about basically re-recruiting Foskey to come back for his senior season, kind of in a similar way he had to do it with Ronnie Stanley. I don't know which way Foskey's leaning. He did say he was going to get an NFL draft evaluation once the season is over, as he should. I mean, he's had an absolutely incredible year this year, but maybe I'm just holding out hope. Maybe if he comes back next year, he's first rounder. I don't know, but either way, just a phenomenal junior season from him, and let's just hope he stays. I totally agree. Um, you know, with each passing week, I, I wonder if he and Kevin Austin are going to stay or if this is the last we're seeing of them, but uh, really, really great season from them. Yeah, it's sort of like the bad side of them having great ends to the season because with every passing game, basically, it's like less and less likely that they come back. But we'll wait and see. We're not going to make any judgments now. Um, but that brings us along to who's drinking free? Who are you buying drinks for after this one? You already mentioned him, but Lance Taylor. Uh, I don't know what he did to make Logan Diggs stay committed last year, but I'm sure... I'm sure as hell glad he did. As we already mentioned, Lance Taylor has done a tremendous job building out the depth in the running back room. And even with Kyron leaving next year, it'll be great again with the addition of Jadarian Price, who's put up insane numbers in Texas this high school season. Uh, yeah, if I see Lance Taylor, the beer's on me. Yeah, I'm going to stick with the coaching staff too. Um, Notre Dame certainly has been getting their money's worth from this Marcus Freeman defense during the second half of the year. Notre Dame hasn't given up a touchdown in the month of November. Their defense has actually outscored their last three opponents, 16 to nine. Um, and they've, like you mentioned, they've already registered more sacks than any team in the Brian Kelly era. And they're pretty close to the school record. He might be a one and done um, because I've already seen his name pop up as a candidate for some power five head coaching jobs as well. We'll have to wait and see again. I'm going to just enjoy this now um, and enjoy how well his defense is playing. And maybe hopefully I'll persuade him to stay in the form of some uh, hypothetical free drinks that I'll likely never actually be able to offer him. I also want to shout out, uh, we'll give an honorable mention, Jordan Yates, the quarterback of Georgia Tech, because my God, dude, that poor guy was just getting annihilated back there. His offensive line just refused to block the D-line, and he's like, what, 5'10", so he's not that much bigger than I am, and he's just getting demolished back there, so dude, like... I'm sorry, Yates. Like that—that that was tough. Like maybe that's why Collins was punting because it was just a long day for him. I legitimately started to feel bad for him. Yeah, I would say it was hard to watch, but it wasn't. Um. <laughs> All right, let's talk some big picture stuff now because we have to. By the time this comes out, the playoff rankings are going to come out tonight. We expect Notre Dame to be six behind Michigan. However, Ohio State and Michigan play this upcoming week, so that's effectively a an elimination game, both in the Big Ten picture and the college football playoff picture as well. I know a lot of people are getting really excited about Notre Dame's playoff hopes. I am as well, don't get me wrong, but Notre Dame still needs some things to happen. It, it's kind of a lot that needs to happen still, but how are you feeling about Notre Dame big picture, postseason plans? Where are you at right now? 
Yeah, you're right. They definitely need some help, but it isn't crazy hypothetical help for once. Um, like th- these just seem like things that probably will and should happen in what I mean by that is Alabama losing to Georgia somewhat convincingly. And also I think that Oklahoma state will likely split their games against Oklahoma and Baylor. So I, I don't know. Like, I just think it's, there's a good chance there. I think there's a good chance Cincinnati loses to Houston. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways Notre Dame can get in still. And so, you know, I would actually put it a little bit above 50%, not much higher, but I would put it a little above. I'm starting to just have a weird feeling. We're going to sneak in. Um, I think, you know, I felt even better today when I saw Stuart Mandel, the athletic had 10 scenarios uh, that could possibly shake out the playoff. And we were only included in two of them because he's never right about anything involving Notre Dame. So that made me feel even more confident that it's going to happen. Yeah. He presented the point that if, and he wasn't the only one, but basically the idea of a two loss Bama team uh, going up against Notre Dame, I think it's, it's ridiculous. But on one hand, I'm thinking if Alabama plays like really tight, against Georgia. Like if that game goes down to the wire, it's going to be tough for me to see the committee not include them just given their love affair with Alabama already. I'm not saying it's the right thing. I'm just saying initially I thought Georgia just needed to win. Now I'm starting to kind of lean that we might need Georgia to win by like at least two scores. It's interesting because the one scenario, like the one thing I haven't heard discussed when it comes to that is when the inverse of that happened three years ago, uh, Bama played Georgia in the SEC championship game, really close game. Georgia actually shouldn't should have won it if Kirby didn't call a fake punt with Justin Fields. Uh, and Georgia was left out because it was their second loss, and it was a close game, and people complained about it then, but they were left out. So who's to say the committee won't do the same thing again when Alabama will likely finish the year with one ranked win? So I... I just think people are maybe overlooking that a little bit. Now, I totally understand the concept of it's Alabama, it's reputation, whatever. And while I probably don't philosophically agree with that, I could probably see it just because it is Alabama and they've built up a lot of goodwill over the years. I'm sure I would find a way to be upset about it, but I I could see it. And so that's why, you know, I'm not going to act like that's ridiculous because while it may be ridiculous, it very well could happen. To to me, I think, the biggest team getting in the way of Notre Dame is actually Oklahoma State. Um, They've been kind of flying under the radar, but I've watched a few of their games lately, and I'm going to be honest, like, they're legit. I think they're a really good football team. Somehow, they lost to Iowa State in Ames um, in, like, late October, but since that game, they've outscored their opponents 165-23 to in their last four games. I know they're not beating up on great teams, but then again, neither is Notre Dame. I think they're just playing... Really good football. I think they'll roll Oklahoma uh, in Bedlam next week. And then I think they'll beat Baylor in the Big 12 championship. And then at that point, if the committee has to decide between an 11-1 Notre Dame team and a one-loss Big 12 champion and Oklahoma State is playing really well too, I think they're going to lean towards the Cowboys. But this season has been so chaotic. Uh, There's still certainly a path for Notre Dame to get in. I just think that Oklahoma because they've dominated the Big 12 for so long that like when Oklahoma State comes in, a lot of teams or a lot of people are quick to dismiss them. And I get that. But this really isn't the same Oklahoma State team that we've seen in recent years. Jim Knowles, their defensive coordinator, he could win the Broyles Award. The defense is playing really, really well for them. Uh, Spencer Sanders isn't the, you know, he's not the greatest quarterback, but they run the ball super well. Sanders can run. They got Jalen Warren. So that's a team to look out for. We got to really hope that the Big 12 just gets in their own way and they somehow split this game. If Oklahoma wins, that's great for uh, Notre Dame. And then we got to hope that 
Then in the Big 12 championship, Oklahoma State is able to beat them. So a lot of football left to be played, but that's sort of the team that I think is actually going to be uh, in Notre Dame's way. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think they're probably the biggest obstacle, but I also just think the Big 12 is going to do what the Big 12 does, and that's implode. So, um, <laughs> I mean, the Pac-12 honest, I, I couldn't, I could not have named a player on Oklahoma State. I know that they've been playing well, but like Spencer Sanders, that's their quarterback's name? Okay. Didn't know that. <laughs> the first game I watched of them was the Texas game, and that was back when we thought Texas was decent. And then in classic Texas fashion, they completely imploded, and then Oklahoma State ran away with it um, in the – fourth quarter, but they're good. I was really upset that the Notre Dame Stanford game is actually going to be at night too, because Mm -hmm. so is the Oklahoma, Oklahoma state game. Yeah. I don't get why that is. That was so annoying. And I was so bummed because I wanted to watch that game. I was hoping Notre Dame could be right in that, that window after the uh, right after the Ohio state Michigan game, but not going to get that kind of luck. So I guess I'll just be following it from my phone in the stands because Notre Dame should beat Stanford by a hundred. Right. All right. Let's bring on uh, Tyler plants. All right, we're joined now by Tyler Plants, the former assistant director of football operations at Notre Dame and a former running back as well during his time as a student athlete. Um, Tyler, it's great to have you on. We had your younger brother Logan on before, and he was one of our favorite interviews. Um, but from what I can tell, you're not taking this call from a tree stand out in the woods. So we're already <laughs> off to a little bit different start here. Uh, but thank you for taking the time. As I understand it, this is the first full season in which you aren't a part of the Notre Dame football program as either a player or on the staff since you were in high school back in 2010, I believe. So what's it been like for you watching this team as a fan this fall? Um, it's been uh, it's been definitely a different perspective for sure. Um, it was kind of a crazy ordeal because I left uh, Notre Dame actually a week before the season got going. Um, so really seeing everything up to essentially week one and then how it's played out has been really cool to see. Um, offensive linemen that have stepped up running back step up, wide receiver step up, seeing some injuries have been heartbreaking, but uh, just seeing the ways that the way that guys have been able to grow and morph into their roles, um, especially defensively too, um, has been really fun to watch. I mean, nothing more fun than watching Myron score a touchdown yesterday, where if there's a guy that everyone should be cheering for, it's that guy. And then to score a touchdown senior day, there's nothing cooler than that. Absolutely. Uh, once you joined the staff in 2015, you had a bunch of different roles over the course of those six years. So could you just kind of describe the different positions you had and how your responsibilities evolved over time? Um, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, one thing that I've always like prided myself in is kind of living in the shadows. You know, I mean, I have um, no goal of doing anything besides for helping the program win. So with that in mind, I started um, working with football operations, um, which turned into like a coaching assistant um, to supplement football operations. Um, and I started that actually halfway through, I believe, the 2015 season. All right. So I spent a couple games away and then came back the Navy game. Then um, from there, did all football operations stuff, morphed into a strength conditioning, um, football ops, coaching, um, where I was able to work little bit with the offensive line, uh, but spent the spring and summer in the weight room. Um, from there, evolved into a special teams, strength conditioning, and a football operations role, which eventually morphed into a more coaching path where I spent, uh, I believe it was two seasons with Coach Polian. Um, and then from there, moved over to the offense. Um, 
And then actually when one of our uh, graduate assistants stepped down, um, I got moved over from special teams to offense. So I was doing a little bit of teams, a little bit of offense um, for a little bit. And um, from there, the role morphed into football operations again, again, with time spent in the weight room and time spent with the offense. But um, football operations after one of our directors of football operations stepped down. So I got moved back into an operational role. So it was kind of a jack of all, master of none thing. But <laughs> I think I did everything throughout my time um, besides for tape ankles. Uh, I did not tape ankles, <laughs> I did not tape wrists, but I squatted about the entire team in a squat rack. I um, did some kind of breakdown on offense. I did some kind of breakdown on defense, some kind of breakdown on special teams and um, bought everything else in the hallway. Yeah, I was about to ask, is there any job that you didn't do? But now we know it was taping ankles. But um, Yeah, the beautiful thing, though, is with this this past fall, I had to tape plenty of wrists. So officially crossed that off the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> so now we can add trainer to the resume as well, basically. No doubt. No doubt. So your last job at Notre Dame was helping operations run smoothly as the assistant director of football operations, given how big – the program is given how many different things go into it. That seems like a pretty important job. What did the day to day of that role look like for you? So that role specifically was was very interesting because right when I got shifted into that was when COVID hit. So it was uh, a completely different kind of role where it was at one point I was making sure that we had a security team because we couldn't have ushers. So we had to be able to um, designate our director of recruiting and director of scouting. Um, so we had DP like checking passes at the door and making sure that guests weren't coming through um, where before it would be just a standard usher. We show up to practice, do whatever we had to do in practice, come back. So there was just a lot of like all hands on deck for a lot of different things that we had to do. Um, so the role morphed from just standard logistics. So as the assistant director, most of the, uh, Stuff would be almost like in-house logistics. So I'd do all the team movements, um, anything really related to the team um, inside of the building. Um, But then when COVID hit, it was whatever we needed at that point. So it was somebody went down. What role were you going to step into? Um, Different leadership pieces to all the way to different intern responsibilities also, where it's just whatever it took to get on the field on Saturday, we all kind of did as a support staff. In your first year away from Notre Dame in, in a while, you've been the offensive line coach at Bethany College in West Virginia. W- what's that experience been like, being fully responsible for the development of an offensive position group? It was awesome. It was, um, as much as I've loved my time here at Notre Dame, it was one of the coolest things I've ever um, been able to do. Um, definitely was, over my time, I've been able to work with the uh, with the Liam Eikenbergs and the Tommy Kramers um, of the world. So again, pretty skilled guys, bigger guys, strong guys that go out there and they can kind of, they work really hard beyond that. They were God gifted with a lot of stuff. Being able to step into Bethany was really awesome. One, um, it was a week before the season started. So it wasn't like we had a spring ball and a fall camp to get these guys in. But um, the trust that the guys showed me was awesome was eye-opening was i can come in there this is how i coach things might be a little bit different than a lot of different people coach things or what they've heard in the past but these guys again stepped up 
and didn't question it. They believed in what I was coaching, which was one of the coolest things. Um, and uh, just the development from what they were to start to how they ended the season was just something that, again, just as a coach, it's, it's what, you, what you dream about. Um, were we great? Absolutely not. But the improvement from week zero to week 10 um, was something that each one of those guys could be really, really proud of. Um, and then just the, the ability to, to coach the offensive line is different than coaching any other position in football where you need five guys to work in tandem. Or if one guy doesn't do his job, the entire line looks bad. So being able to teach that group to build the unit, to be eating together as a group, to having pizza night on Thursdays with the group, to watching third down as a group, um, being able to drill that in their head um, was really cool to see that grow and morph and evolve. And then uh, just the, the way that they played on the field was also something that I was really proud of. So again, there's, there's nothing cooler than being able to coach my own unit like that. And it seems perfect too, because offensive line is in the plants DNA. I know your dad played offensive line for Notre Dame back in the eighties, and he was really instrumental in your love for the university and your whole family's love. And like so many of us, I know you grew up a huge Notre Dame fan, had the dream of going to school there since you were a kid. But even if this story sounds familiar, everyone's path is, is a little bit different. So what can you tell us about how you eventually became a student athlete at Notre Dame? Yeah, that was, I mean, I was kind of brainwashed from the get. Like, I'm sure Logan's story isn't too far off from mine. Yeah. Where, we all were. It's okay. It's a safe yeah, right? Yeah, it's like, hey, guys, do whatever you want. It was, But it's, you're going to Notre Dame when it's all safe. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, kind of my journey was, like, from a little kid, my parents dressed us up in my dad's uniforms. We went to games for as long as I can remember. Um, and kind of as we got to high school, the the dream started to change a little bit because when you're five foot eight and you weigh 200 pounds, like uh, Charlie Weiss wasn't going to be knocking on my door offering me a scholarship. Um, so my perspective was still like, all right, I really want to get in Notre Dame, really get in Notre Dame. If I can just get a chance, I really want to get in Notre Dame. And then it was kind of like, all right, well, this seems unrealistic. Maybe I'll go to an Ivy League. Maybe I'll go to a military academy and just kept working. Like, I remember at one point, I think it was in eighth grade, again, kind of backtracking a little bit. My parents said, I got a B. My parents sat me down and they're like, hey, like, really best, like, good work on everything. But like a grade like this, you just won't get in the other day. So good luck. I mean, probably transition to think about another school, but uh, Notre Dame's kind of off the table now. And like knowing just trying to freak me out um, that Bs are just simply not acceptable. Um, and then from there, that was my only goal was to get in Notre Dame, was to get in Notre Dame, was to get in Notre Dame. Um, and then as I got to my junior, senior year again, it was like, I don't know if this is realistic. I don't know if this is realistic. And then finally, I came home in the spring from a rugby game and uh, my whole family's in the backyard and they have the acceptance letter. And it was like my whole family was crying before I even got there. And uh, we sat out in the back, talked about how cool it was. Every other ambition that we had about trying to play football somewhere else was just dumped out the window. And my dad convinced me to get into a full suit and drive to the Goog, all right, and ask for a position, like, on the team. And whatever my dad says, especially in high school, I'm like, yes, sir, that's absolutely right. That's gospel. <laughs> so I get in a suit, 
And I drive over and I bang on the door and I, Tim McDonald, who's currently, uh, he's going to be running the Giants here soon enough, but currently working with the New York Giants, um, had the patience to sit down and talk with me about an opportunity and what it would take to walk on and how there's no current openings and how we'll keep your name in the hat whenever uh, tryouts happen in the spring. And like in my head, I was like, yeah, I did it. Like, that was exactly what you're supposed to do. And then like retrospectively, I'm like, these guys get 900 emails from every person who thinks that they can walk on the team. And then I'm the guy who walked over in a suit. Um, but at the end of the day, it all worked out. So I guess, again, my dad, uh, he was onto something. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, when, when you were in high school at Providence Catholic, you primarily played linebacker. And we were looking up earlier, since you registered 287 tackles your final two years of high school, which first off, that's an insane number. But I'm wondering what led to the the switch to running back once you got to Notre Dame and, and how difficult of a transition was that for you? Um, it was a challenging transition. The reason that I was uh, moved over was because you're not going to see um, too many five foot eight <laughs> linebackers. Um, was I football savvy? Sure. Did I watch a bunch of tape? Yeah. Do I think I was faster than Carlo Calabrese? No doubt about that. <laughs> but, uh, but uh what it was, was uh, I was, I fit a running back role. And when you're walking in, coming in as a walk-on, it's who do you fit on the other team? And uh, if they said I needed to play running back, that's what I did. So DP said, all right, you're wearing number 49. No questions asked. Yes, sir. You're going to play running back. All right. Yes, sir. You gave me the opportunity. That's all I asked for. Um, the transition from linebacker to running back, running back's a true skill. Like a lot of people in the NFL, they're, they're People talk about running backs are dispensable. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true. Like being able to see a hole and feel a hole and have the patience to to do that, and then beyond that, the skill set that we used was a lot of route running. Um, we really didn't want to use running backs in protection too often if we didn't have to because of the mismatch with the linebacker. Um, so, for me, transitioning over from a guy who basically was an offensive defensive lineman my whole life and then just kind of stopped growing in high school and then transitioned to the probably the most skilled position on the field um, at the best, if not one of the best college football um, places in the world. Yeah, that was a difficult transition for sure. Um, but it was, it was cool to see football from a completely different side. Um, so I think it was pretty rewarding, especially now as a coach to be able to play linebacker for an extended period and then flip to the offensive side of the ball. So we've heard that your feats on the scout team were some stuff of legend. Uh, we heard you were never tackled. So first I'll ask if that's true. And two, what, what was it really like being on the scout team, going up against a starting defense every day um, that was elite as the one Notre Dame had back in 2012? Because even if it's scout team, you might not be getting tackled to the ground every time, but that's still a grind day in and day out. So what was that all like? Yeah, well, like the initial point, I never got tackled to the ground, um, even in team periods. Um, so that is true. It's true. Um, so that was never a problem for me. But uh, it was every single snap for me was like an opportunity to earn it. Um, so there were times where they had to take me off the field because, again, it's me versus you. I need to take great steps. I need to use my leverage. I need to be low to high to win that point of a contact because 210 versus 300 isn't going to work out well most of the time. But done the right way, executed the right way, it could win. Um, so it was definitely a grind. Um, but 
just the kind of guy that I am, I take every snap personally. So it's like, it's either you're going to win or I'm going to win. So whether it be scout team or whether it was kickoff or special teams or any capacity, I took a lot of pride in every rep. After three years of being a walk-on, you eventually earned a full scholarship towards the end of your playing career. How did you find out and what was that moment like for you? Um, that was really a cool moment. Um, we found out at the end of at, uh, camp my senior year. Um, so coach brought us all up. It wasn't anything crazy, which made it even better, where it wasn't a, a big glamorous or it wasn't dressed up in a uniform or anything nuts like that. But it was uh, we got out there. Coach Kelly brought the team together. He made a standard announcements and then he announced that um, me, Chuck Fissinger and uh, Connor Cavaliers were all on scholarship. And um, when he announced my name and just kind of seeing the roar of your teammates and the guys giving up to give you a hug and, and dap you and slap you on the back, um, there really wasn't anything like it. Um, to be able to think in high school, like I'm begging Tim McDonald to please let me in the door as I'm sitting outside sweating in a suit, to being able to be one of the 85 guys on scholarship at Notre Dame is something that I'm pretty proud of. So we're in the senior year, and I saw a video of you at the pep rally before the Stanford game in 2014. <laughs> and if you're listening and you haven't seen this or don't know what I'm talking about, I encourage everyone to check it out because it, it's hilarious. Basically, Tyler here gave a speech uh, at the pep rally, and as part of it, smashed his head and broke a bunch of wooden boards. And I'm not talking like one or two. It had to be like five because the opponent's logo of everyone Notre Dame had beaten so far that year was on each wooden board and one by one smashed him with his forehead. So <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. To be honest, I have lots of questions, but you tell me what, what was the story there and how did that happen? Whose idea was it? Just, you got the floor. That was a funny one. So it was, um, it was actually Chad Clunder, our old, old DFO's idea. And then also Duke Preston, who was our old director of player development, um, who's Chad's with the giants and then Duke's with um, the Buccaneers. But uh, before the game, they always had a tough time trying to convince somebody to do the pep rallies. And because, uh, like, nobody wants to come up with something motivating to say or they really want to. So being able to find, like, the mix between the two personalities was always hard for just that team. And then finally they walk up to me and they're like, hey, Plants, you got the floor tonight. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and again, I'm going to do it. I was like, is this going to help the program win? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll do it. So that week, like, I'm, they're like, they told me about maybe 24 hours before. And I kind of brushed it off. I'm like, you're going to have a captain or a starter or somebody who matters to be able to do this. And uh, they're like, no, 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 no. And Duke's like, hey, man, I got an idea. I'm like, what do you think about maybe like smashing some two by fours over your head? And I was like, Duke, I don't think that's easy, man. <laughs> I think <laughs> how about you do that and then you get back right? to me on how easy that is and then we'll go forward but you I've been do running first. I've been running my head through Stefan too and all the boys all week and now it's like hey man do you mind breaking these boards over your head <laughs> and at first I was like this is the stupidest idea and then like they keep talking and they keep talking and I was like you know what we could we can do something with this and so then 
we're getting it going. And I'm like, all right, I just need somebody to hold these boards and we're just going to wing it. So we got up and we uh, started talking about the two things that always pissed me off the most about Stanford was they always thought that they were the smarter team and they always thought that they were the tougher team. Um, so from there, the, the narrative kind of starts. And then each time I'd break a board, Joe Schmidt would give some background noise, break another board, background noise. And the best thing about the whole video is actually seeing BK's face because he's like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I'm just winging it. And then wait, did he way, know what did he know what was coming? I don't think he knew like the boards <laughs> or what was going on. I don't think anyone knew, but we were just trying to figure out a way to keep pep rallies alive. Um, and it worked. It worked. Um, the worst part about it, though, was the next week they're like, hey, plants, that's pretty good. All right. You got another one. <laughs> I'm like, what? I was like, I thought it was a one and done. Like, that's perfect. Right there, leave it. And I had to do it like a couple more times throughout the course of the year. Like at one point I had to like kick a tar heel. Like, like that was like a piece of drywall. Like I had like a wrestling belt. I had a, I had a couple things throughout the course of that year. And then actually one of the all timers, the Goog, the king of the Goog, Tim Collins, um, who's been there since like the late eighties. Um, he actually created a um, like a highlight video sort of that like cut up like game clips, um, uh, different clips from the pep rallies and then Stone Cold Steve Austin. So it was like the Stone Cold walkout song to all of that. So that was that was pretty awesome. So, I mean, job, Tim Collins are putting that together. So that was one of my prouder moments um, for the Stone Cold comparison. But. But yeah, you know, that was just another one of those opportunities where it's uh, I like to live in live in the shadows, but uh, the team needs me to do something like that. I'll get it done. <laughs> uh, another story we were told it's, involves the the Navy game in Dublin in 2012 uh, in towards the end of that game with like less than a minute left. Robbie Toma, we've also had on this program, scores an untouched touchdown on kind of an end around. We've heard that that play was intended to be called for you. W- what happened there? What, why did that end up going to Robbie? So that was talking about football operations at its finest. So what I typically would have to do is run down and kickoff or be on kickoff return. Um, but in order to earn, like especially now being on the operational side, like you need to have an offensive role to travel to where it's like offensive guy and supplemented by your special teams role. Well, my offensive role was not carrying the football. It was holding cards. So I would have to go out there, block on kickoff return, sprint, drop my helmet, and then I'd have to pick up these cards. And every single time Chuck would call in a personnel, me, Eric Lee, and Nick Fitzpatrick would have to figure out what the card was, hold the card up. All right, bam, bam, whatever we had to do, go down, score, drop the cards off, run down on kickoff, same ordeal every time. Um, and then that time we're sitting there, we're signaling the plays. Everyone's kind of going in and Chuck Martin, I hear plants, 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 where you at? Plants, get in there. So I'm like, oh shit, drop the cards, turn to go and run and grab my helmet. And I turn around and Robbie Tillman has a sissiest little jump cut falling into the end zone for a touchdown. And, Damn it. Rob. I mean, obviously I was excited for him. Like from there it dropped and I ran out and I dapped him up and probably like, headbutted him for all I know but it was uh but yeah that was that was my touchdown and then one of my other proud moments is one time we were out there and Autry Denson who was a running back coach for, for a long time 
it was like our three leading rushers. It was like Ryan Grant was out there, um, Autry Denson, uh, Ricky Waters, Jerome Bettis, and then me. And it was like all these guys with like incredible numbers and then a guy that never even carried the ball in Notre Dame. So it was just like a perfect picture of like <laughs> Notre Dame's running backs all put together into one shot that I didn't probably deserve to be in. <laughs> no, I think you deserved it. I mean, you weren't just a football player, though. Uh, you were also a member of the Notre Dame rugby team, and you made it to the quarterfinals and Bengal bouts as well. I'm not really sure how you had enough time in the day to do all of that because each one requires a significant amount of time and energy, uh, but you were able to excel in all three. That's pretty rare for, for a football player to be able to do that sort of thing. So how did being a part of so many different sports enhance your Notre Dame experience? Um, well, there was, no, there was no dull moment for sure. So um, boxing, actually my senior year, I did win the heavyweights. So that was that was a um, pretty fun ordeal. Um, funny thing about that was the kid I boxed that year, Logan came in and did Bengal bouts the next and beat the exact same kid in the heavyweight division. I should have known that. Yep. So that was so that was a that was a funny funny story, but um, it was just so when I initially came in and I was coming to Notre Dame, I was like, well, we'll see what football works out, but I'm going to play rugby. Worst case scenario. And one of my best friends, um, older brothers, was like the captain of the team, and a lot of those guys kind of brought back the rugby program to Notre Dame, and they had a legitimate coach, and we were playing all over the country. Um, so it was like, all right, well, this is a really great alternative where if I can't play Notre Dame football, I'm playing Notre Dame rugby. Um, so off the gate, I was going to be able to play a little bit of flanker, a little bit of inside center. Um, and that was a blast. And then uh, from there, when I got on the football team the next year, um, it was just something that I couldn't give up. So it was like any bye week or in the spring when we had any time off, um, I would make sure that I was out there playing rugby um and then on the back end when I finally got done with with uh football the beautiful thing about that last year was I was basically done with everything that next semester um so that was almost dedicated to to rugby and boxing at that point um so just being able to do the different people that I was able to meet with all those different clubs was was awesome um being able to play with my brother Zach um rugby was was one of the coolest memories i'll have um we played linebacker together in high school and then we we're able to play rugby together it was really really cool um and just the the friend bases you're able to meet the different people you're able to meet and uh the different cultures in each one of the sports um where rugby is uh is pretty international and just the way that they um play like the camaraderie amongst different teams I think is one of the coolest things boxing with the mission of um of the Bengal bouts with the missions in Bangladesh being able to put together hundreds of thousands of dollars to to really make a difference in somewhere outside of here and then being able to play for the biggest brand and in, in sports at Notre Dame football I think each three of those brought a pretty interesting uh college experience I'd say so was I uh Summa cum laude, no, but I, uh, I had a hell of an Notre Dame experience nonetheless. I'm curious, um, from the time you first joined the program as a player back in 2011, obviously a lot has changed within the Notre Dame football program, and, and you've gotten to witness a lot of that firsthand. 
now, you know, Notre Dame really is one of the elite programs in college football and has a chance to make the college football playoff for the third time in the last four seasons. From your view, what were the most important events over the course of, of that period of time to, to kind of get the program to where it is today? Um, I mean, there's it's hard to pinpoint one thing. Um, and there are so many people that built it, even from what it was before, um, who were replaced throughout the transition from when Coach Kelly got there to where we are right now, um, who were integral roles. Um, but some of the biggest transitions for us was just a different commitment um, to the weight room, which you'd probably hear a lot of the time. Coach Longo was one of the best coaches um, that I've had, a guy who really good man um, and a guy who really did a great job. But the resources that we poured into um, the strength program and with the addition of Coach Bayless, I think that was a really, really huge um, just kind of step up for us. Not Again, Coach Longo, great coach. Coach Bayless, a great coach. But the commitment that we made to the weight room as a program, um, which in my opinion was the biggest thing. Uh, like coming up through high school, the sweat equity that we had in the weight room amongst each other, I think is the biggest precursor of success. All right, like if you're in there and like, Luke, you see Tyler in there and you guys are working, doing that every single day, like you're going to trust him with everything you got just because you knew he put the same time and you knew he went as hard as he can and he constantly improved. So it's like having that element um, and making that kind of the heart and soul of what we were all about, I think was um, the, the biggest um, improvement that we made after that 2016 season. Um, you can see it in the body of our guys. You can see it in just the overall health of our team. And then the way that we performed in the fourth quarter. Um, I thought that was the biggest thing was uh, we just changed kind of the mindset of the program where it was like, Hey, we're down. Or so many times when we were playing, it was like, all right, we're down. Who's going to make the play or like, what the hell? Like you messed that play up. Like you were down because you turned into like Clemson game last year where it was like, there's no way in hell we're losing this game. And I remember like Avery Davis again, who guy who went down with an injury this year. He looked over and he's like, there's no way in hell we're losing like this after Clemson threw a touchdown. Goes out there, freaking makes a huge play. We go on to win in overtime, like one of the coolest experiences ever. Um, but just that mentality of like, I'm going to be the guy who makes the play. Um, if you mess up a play, next play mentality, the camaraderie that's been built amongst that group. And I think the heart of that is just a, a massive emphasis that we put on the weight room. Yeah, and I think that's pretty evident now. You see the teams like peaking in November, and given the amount of injuries they've had this season, the fact that the guys are still in great shape and ready to perform, I think it's due in large part to the weight room. Um, I know you and offensive coordinator Tommy Reese have been good friends since your playing days, and, and he was recently nominated for the Broyles Award, which is handed out to the best assistant in college football every year. We all know he has an incredible football IQ, but considering how well you know him as a person, what else is it about him that makes him such an effective coach for this team? He's a competitor more than anything. All right. He, uh, well, I always, I always make fun of Tommy. I always call him a North side cake eater. Cause he's from Lake Forest. <laughs> yeah. Lake Forest. <laughs> yeah. Cake Forest. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but there is uh Tommy's got a competitive edge to him. Like he, he works hard. Like he is, um, a guy who doesn't like losing. You play him in noon hoops. Like I love to just guard and check Tommy 
um, and tell him how bad he's shooting because it just lights him on fire. So a lot of guys, it's like it'll walk you back into a corner or it's like, hey, like what's the world's up against me? Like he turns on another switch um, or he's just a competitive guy. And that's what you need to be successful in anything, number one, but especially something as competitive as college football. Um, a place where you played quarterback and you went through the damn ringer um, with everyone voicing their opinion on how they felt about how you played or what kind of player you were. Um, and especially being such a non-athlete that he is to have so much, <laughs> <laughs> to have so much success at the quarterback position is, is pretty special. Um, but, uh, but no, he's, and he's a smart guy. Like he is, don't get me wrong. He is a very, very, very smart guy. He's got a great memory. He sees it. He can recall stories and times and plays from when he was playing um, football one-on-one football understanding. Like it's, it's through the roofs. Um, so to see where he's going to grow and advance and step into here in the next couple of years, it's going to be pretty damn cool. But you can see from the way that cones played this year, from the way that book progressed, just to see how the offense completely pivoted where it was, where, 13 personnel punch in the face with the, with the veteran offensive line to, all right, we got skilled players on the perimeter. Let's take advantage of that. Like that's not easy to do, but to be able to coach entire unit and put that all together is um, just kind of speaks volumes to the kind of coach he is and uh, just the kind of coordinator that, that he's been able to become in such a short time. Keeping it on the coaching staff, you've been around Brian Kelly for pretty much his entire 12-year career at Notre Dame. Now he's the winningest coach in school history and, and has the program in the best place it's been in, in decades. Why do you think he's been able to have so much sustained success as the head coach at Notre Dame? Um, a lot of it's due to his process. Um, he does a really great job of being able to define what it is from A to Z of winning. Um, he does a great job of keeping everything here too, where it's like we walk into some of these big games and it's not like, all right, we're going to elevate you guys to play at this level. Like I'm going to scream, I'm going to give you a highlight tape and give you this. And now I expect you to play three times better than you, than you deserve. It's like, no, we have a process. You started in January, you went through the season. All right. And when stuff starts to hit the fan, you don't step up to the occasion, you fall back to your preparation. Um, and he always hits that home. So being able to introduce a, a mental performance piece to the equation has been huge for the guys just to make sure everybody knows, hey, we all get nervous. This is how you can handle, handle it. To being able to continue to vet and hold coaches accountable um, to the way he just structures camp, uh, spring ball, all the way through the season. It's, it's obviously taken a bunch of tweaks and he's adjusted, but what he does is has been successful. And then beyond that, the way that he's adjusted recruiting um, to found guys that um, fit Notre Dame um, and what Notre Dame's all about and the mission he wants to build and the program he wants to create, um, it's pretty great. So the identity that he created, the process that he's built, and then just the ability to pivot for him, especially where he was kind of the high strung coach who would, who would tell you how he felt to complete elimination of any demeaning and making sure that it's only demanding has been so received, received so well by the players. Um, so just to kind of see the way that he's been able to adjust um, his coaching style process and everything else that comes with it has been, uh, 
is a big reason for his success. And there's no one way to pinpoint exactly what it is, but it's a culmination of a lot of good people that work hard and then a vision that he has. Yeah, I mean, 12 years is a really long time. I'm sure it's, you know, plenty of hours, plenty of tweaks. But we got three more rapid-fire questions and one more question at the end before we let you go. So real quick, who threw better parties when you were a student, the football team or the rugby team? Rugby team. Like a football team, we had some parties, but it was like – it was our – like there were some good football parties. I don't know. It's more consistent parties was definitely the rugby team. Um, we did have some legendary football parties for sure. Um, uh, yeah, that's a great question. Grab one for sure. Um, I think I'd probably go rugby team. Okay. Uh, it's now time for our recurring question. We ask every alum that comes on this podcast – What's the weirdest thing you ever saw in Club Fever or in a night out in South Bend in general? Club Fever. I've seen some weird things in Club Fever. Yeah. Um, well, I really like like heavy metal music, so I um, I've seen a couple concerts there actually by myself. No way. Does. What's that scene like? Oh, that a is, heavy metal <laughs> concert in Fever. That is great. Um, like Seven <laughs> Dust. Seven Dust is one of my favorite bands, and if you look at the hair that the drummer has. He and then the, even the lead singer for that matter. He's like about five foot five. He's got dreadlocks and a nose bowl ring. And we actually convinced him to come to CJ's afterwards. So actually, me and Tony Spring would have a picture with him at CJ's. Um, so like that's when CJ's was was cool before Noofs the new Finney scene. Nonpoint we saw there, which is a pretty cool concert. When I say we, I mean literally myself. Um, but. Uh, those are probably the most interesting things that I yeah I can't even I, imagine uh, yeah and that whole scene itself is just beautiful and something that needs to be brought back down oh yeah definitely all right who wins in a boxing match you or your brother Logan that I would win that hundred times hundred he's got a little close. bit of reach on you you can ask him you can call him right now and he'd be like Tyler would whoop my ass <laughs> oh that's good um. Before we let you go, uh, we've got to ask about the the foundation set up in honor of your brother, Zach. We've talked about Zach on the podcast before. He was a great friend of both of us and, and a great supporter of this show before he passed away almost a year ago. Uh, but his memory lives on in large part because of everything you and your family have done. I know you're the president of the Zach Plants Foundation, and, and I also know there's a big event the foundation's putting on this coming weekend, the Zachamo Bowl. So I'll just give you the floor to, to tell our listeners what the foundation's about and, and how they can get involved in such a great cause. Yeah, so thank you guys again for that and the awesome recognition last year after he passed. Um, but the Zach Plants Foundation um, is just a way for us to carry him on. So it really aims to, the way that I've put it is aims to continue his life of service with the focus on his attentiveness, his attentiveness for mental health and the advocacy of men's mental health. Um, is that a little bit of a broad definition? Definitely. Um, so again, our, our goal right now is to continue to fine tune what we're about um, with our initial goal right now of having a month long fundraiser, um, which we've called the Zach Mobile, um, which will culminate in a, a six on six football tournament at uh, Providence Catholic High School. Um, goal is to have 16 teams. Each team will raise about a thousand dollars with the ultimate goal to try and match what he raised last year. Um, via Movember at about 140,000. Um, I think we're about halfway there right now. Um, so with the initial goal of just 
getting our foundation set, getting our feet in the ground. Um, as we start to learn and uh, continue to work with resources like Providence Catholic and be able to work with Notre Dame to see how they want to start tackling this really mental health um, problem that we have throughout the country. Um, specifically, um, our goal is to be able to tackle um, men in, and in, ideally in sports, where one thing that I've realized, especially as a player, where I've been lucky enough to be able to be around sports throughout my career is this concept of shedding um, where people lose their identity of who they are because they were convinced, well, I haven't been a baseball player my whole life and I'm not playing baseball anymore. How do I, how do I readjust to who I identify myself as or people that are going through something as traumatic as losing a sibling or, or families struggling with cancer or something as simple as just anxiety and, performance anxiety and imposter syndrome and just small things like that where as we start to raise money raise awareness meet people learn more about this we want to be able to come a resource um, that's not just trying to preach advocacy but trying to serve people um, so we've reached out to a couple people in the nba a couple people in the nfl um, of just trying to create some kind of baseline platform of a resource. Um, so all in all, our, our goal is to carry on my brother. Um, that's, that was setting a legacy for, for my siblings has been my goal and everything I've done in my life. And now losing Zach to be able to carry him on is kind of just reignited a fire in me and, and how do we help other people? Um, with that being a mission of his and, a core mission of ours. Um, so, I mean, I can, I could talk about this all day and what we want to do. Um, but the biggest resource that we could, we could utilize right now is just someone with a background in mental health and kind of help continue to steer us in the direction that we want to go. Um, two is if you want to make change in anything, typically it's going to be via some form of capital or money. So being able to develop our initial financial bases has been really, really critical. And then anyone who is willing to, to give time, we would, we would appreciate it more than, you know, so if somebody could help us uh, with our website or help us be able to advertise or a guy who is just close to Zach and wants to get involved with something, we would, uh, we would take it in any capacity you'd offer, whether it be five minutes a month or a couple hours a week. Um, we are just trying to launch something to, to continue this guy. It was so special in so many people's lives and obviously ours. And we know that we could really build this into something pretty cool. Yeah, it's an incredible cause for an incredible person. Would you mind sharing some information, some ways that people, if they're listening, if there's a way they could contact you or contact the foundation? Absolutely. So if you go to ZachPlants.com, there's a bunch of different ways that you can either donate to what we're doing Um or there's links for you to be able just to send your contact information. I'll reach out as soon as I possibly can. Again, we are very ground level right now. We've got about 10 of us that have been working pretty hard to put everything together. Um, but we are uh, a pretty organized foundation at this point that's uh, full speed ahead, ready to tackle this uh, mental health problem in any capacity that we can. 
All right, man, that's great. Thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. If you're listening, be sure to contact Tyler. And if you can help in any way, it seems like they're more than open to it. So thanks again for the time, man. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you guys so much. Sorry I wasn't up in a tree stand. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that's all right. I like this background, yeah. too. Yeah, this is actually has a bar we built down in the basement in South Bend. Actually, out of the bleachers in the stadium. So. Oh, nice. Cool stuff. All right, man. Take care. Thank you so much. Have a great day. See ya. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Sons of Saturday Irish. For Luke and myself, thank you guys for listening. We'll be back later this week for our preview of the Stanford game. Until then, please rate, review, subscribe if you haven't already, and give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Sons of Sad Irish. Stay safe and enjoy the holidays, everybody. Peace.